good to be with you today. It's really exciting to be able to dig into God's Word. I hope that you guys are excited as well. Um, you have been studying 2 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 today. And I think that as you jumped into this text, one of the things that you probably noticed right away is like we don't get a recap of events as we go into this, do we? Um, this isn't like watching our favorite Netflix Netflix series and as we move into season two, like we get that nice little review of season one, right? We don't have this here in First and Second Samuel. And the reason why is we have to remember is that these were two books, or these two books were actually one. And so the author and the narrator is assuming that we already know what happened in season one because we've just been reading straight through. So hopefully you worked a little bit on that question one of your homework that did that little review for you because um, I think that was helpful just to get some reminders of the events that have already happened. Because as we dive in today, we're really starting right in the middle of the story, okay? Um, so as we start and do we look at um, this text, we're really going to dive right into the narrative, and there's very little review of what happened before. Um, but just as a reminder, last semester when we ended, we saw that we left Saul on the mountain of Gilboa, and he had just fallen on his sword. He had just killed himself in battle because he knew that he was going to die. Um, and we kind of left off on this somber note uh, last semester when we ended. We left off with this, like, feeling of heaviness over the weight of what had just happened. Um, and David who we know is going to be the future king, is not king yet. Like, in fact, David, we don't even really hear about them at the, at the end of that chapter, and we're left with this feeling of like, okay, we know that there's hope. We know eventually David's going to get on the throne, but we're not there yet. And so we left off last semester with this cliffhanger, and that's where we pick up today, but unfortunately, as you saw in your homework, things aren't going to get a lot happier just yet. Um, and I think that's part of what studying through the Bible looks like. As we go line by line through the text, at the end of some weeks, we're not always going to have this feeling of like, oh man, that was a great ending. Sometimes we're just kind of left with a little bit of heaviness. Sometimes we don't always feel that plot resolution. And that's where we find ourselves today. So now that I've like totally sold you on first and second first and chapters one and two of Second Samuel, we're gonna go ahead and dive right in. And we're gonna look at chapter one, verse one. And it begins with this. It says, After the death of Saul. That's the recap that we get, right? After the death of Saul. And I love that this is our intro into Second Saul, Second Samuel, because it almost beckons us to ask the question, now what? Right? Now what? What happens now? Because Saul reign has Saul's reign has ended, so now where do we find ourselves? And we might expect that we're immediately going to find ourselves with David on the throne. But as we're going to find out, the narrative moves a little bit more slowly than that. That's not right where we find ourselves right away. So after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So taking ourselves back to 1 Samuel chapter 29, we remember hopefully this story that David had a little bit of a run-in with the Amalekites, okay? So let me just refresh you on this story. David had returned to his camp at Ziklag, and he found that the entire camp had been burned down by the, the, by the Amalekites. He found that the wives and children that had been left behind had been kidnapped, okay? And then David, through God's sovereignty and through God's leading, finds the Amalekites eventually, is able to defeat them, and is able to bring home all of those family members who were taken. So we're picking up here in that story that was kind of left off, and we, tell, we hear, see here that the narrator tells us, like, David's now been home from that battle for two days, and then he gets this news that we're going to see here in a minute. And if you looked in your workbook, um, at the map in your workbook, there's some important things to notice about this area of Ziklag. Okay, so take a look at your map, find Ziklag, it's kind of to the left, um, and you're going to notice that Ziklag is not part of Israel. It is in the land of the Philistines. And so what we, this tells us here is that David is living in exile, okay? He is not part of the land of Israel right now. He has left Israel because Saul was pursuing him, because Saul was chasing him, and he's been living in the land of the Philistines, and that's where we find him right now. 
There's also some significant history between the Amalekites and the Israelites that is important for us to remember. And it goes beyond just this one battle that is referenced here by our narrator. The Amalekites were a group of people that have been at war with the Israelites for a long period of time. In fact, when the Israelites left Exodus and Moses was leading them out, or in Exodus, when the Israelites left Egypt and Moses was leading them out from the Red Sea into the desert, the Amalekites were that group that kind of like pounced on the Israelites when they were weak and attacked them. And because of that, God remembered that. And if you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, God told Saul, hey, because of this action, because of what they did back when I was leading the people out of Egypt, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. Okay? And in that story, we saw that Saul didn't fully obey. He went to battle against the Amalekites, but it was kind of like a half attempt. And he did not completely wipe them out. And since that time, since Saul's disobedience, these people have continued to be a source of trouble for the people of Israel. And so we're going to see here this tension between that idea that the Amalekites were supposed to be a people who were wiped out, but here they're going to continue to pop up in the story. In fact, we're going to see that it's going to be an Amalekite who delivers the news of Saul's death to David. Let's look at verse 2. And on the third day, behold... A man from Saul's camp with his clothes tor- came with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. So this man shows up to David's camp in Ziklag with this visible evidence of mourning. And he falls at the feet of D- David, which kind of shows that he's recognizing David now as king. Verse 3, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Now remember, David knows that there was going to be a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Because if you remember, David's in the land of the Philistines, and he was actually like, like working with the Philistine commander. Remember, he was almost about to go to battle against his own people before that commander discharged him from the army. And so David knew that this battle was about to go on. So David says, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? So this is old news to us, right? The death of Jonathan and Saul. But David, this is the first time that he has received news of this battle. And can you imagine what David is feeling in this moment I think sometimes we can read these historical texts kind of without emotion and just like look at them as being facts that are reported, but this is something that probably sends David reeling. David has just learned that the king who has been trying to kill him is dead, and he has also learned that his best friend is dead. And he has no TV, he has no like iPhone that he can quickly check the news on, he has no way to know are these facts true, and so he kind of pushes the Amalekite for more details. Verse 6, the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. Now, what the Amalekite is trying to communicate here to David as he says that the chariots were close upon Saul, he's basically saying his death was imminent, like it was going to happen. Because those chariots, when they would come, those chariots were what carried the archers, Okay, the ones with the bows and arrows. And so he was basically saying, like, Saul was as good as dead when I happened upon him. Verse 7, and when he looked behind me, meaning Saul, he called to me, and I answered, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, Lord. So we see that this man is seeking reward, right? He knows this story between David and Saul. He knows the the battle and the tension that has been happening between them. And he thinks he's going to be rewarded by this future king because he is the man who has killed the enemy, right? Or so he says. 
So as proof, this Amalekite brings this crown and he brings this armlet to kind of indicate like, hey, these are the the signs of royalty from the king. And we're left with a little bit of tension here because in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we read a very different account of Saul's death, didn't we? In chapter 31, we're told by the narrator that Saul falls on his own sword, that it's Saul who kills himself. And so these stories don't quite line up. And so which account do we believe? So a good rule of thumb when we are doing some literary study is to always trust the narrator. To always trust the voice of the narrator over the voice of a character, especially when it's a character that we should know we shouldn't trust. We have been trained by the narrator up to this point that the Amalekites are not a people to be trusted, right? They are the enemy of God. And so as we hear this man's story, as we hear that he is a Amalekite, as it contradicts the voice of the narrator, we should know in our gut that this man is not telling the truth. And there's some other things that don't quite add up with his story either. Because even though Saul's downfall might have been eminent, even though, like this man says, like, hey, the chariots were upon him, there's no way that Saul would have been completely alone in battle. And we know that when we read chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, who is beside him? It's his armor bearer, right? In fact, we know in chapter 31 that Saul actually asked his armor bearer to kill him. And so as we read this, we see that things don't quite add up. But it does seem that in some, in some way of events that this Amalekite does happen upon Saul's dead body. Because he has the crown, he has the armlet, he takes these signs, he strips him basically of his royalty, and he carries them to Ziklag, to David, in the hopes of getting a reward. Now, I don't know about you, but as we get to this point in the, narr- in the narrative, I kind of expect David to start to ask a few more questions about the, this Amalekite and start to, to question him a little bit more, but that's not what happens. Instead, we move into this, this scene of grief, beginning in verse 11. It says, Then David took hold of his clothes, and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan and his son. And for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So if we look at this text and we begin to just look at it very literally, we might be a little confused. Because we just saw that this Amalekites before David, he tells them this news. And then we get this story that David, David and his people, they weep and they mourn until evening. And so it's kind of like, well, what's going on with this Amalekite? Is he just like standing there before David, just like waiting? Because then the narrative is going to pick back up and go back to that story, right? And that's why when we read the Bible, we have to read not literally, but literarily, okay? This is a book of literature, and we need to remember this is historical fiction. And so, yes, this author is telling a story. He is recounting history, but he is doing it in a way that isn't necessarily chronological, What is more important to the author is getting his point across. He is not so concerned with the order of events. And so for this narrator, this story with the Amalekite can be put on hold because the more important thing is to deal with this grief. So think about this, because we do this all the time, and this is not just an ancient Near Eastern thing. Um, my, My kids, like when they come home from school and I ask them how is their day, okay, Think about how that's, that typically goes for you, right? So my one daughter, Adelaide, um, she, like, one of the things she prays for every single morning is she wants to be the lucky duck at school. And the lucky duck, like, the teacher puts, I'm guessing they're, like, names with ducks on them. I don't really know. But she puts names in a basket at the end of the day of all the kids who obeyed and followed the rules, and she pulls a name, and that kid is the lucky duck for that day. And, and they get to do a special thing the next day. Like, they can bring in a stuffed animal to school, or they can choose a class color, and everyone dresses in that color. And so this is, like, her dream. Like, every Every day, like, Lord, help me to be the lucky duck today. And so Addie the other day came home from school, okay, and I asked her, how was your day? And Addie did not say to me, well, Mom, first I got off the bus, and then I had breakfast at school, and then I went to class, and I did my morning work, and then after morning work, like, that's not how the story went. Instead, she said, Mom, I was the lucky duck today, right? She jumps right to the end, right to the most important part, and that is what our narrator is doing here for us. Okay? He is jumping to the most important part that he wants to communicate to us about this story. 
So regardless of the correct order of events, I think one question we need to ask ourselves is, does David's grief surprise us? Does his grief surprise us? I mean, the mourning for Jonathan makes sense, right? This is his best friend. But we might expect this mourning to be mixed with some rejoicing because Saul is dead. Saul, this man who has tortured him, this man who has hunted him, this man who has pursued his life for so long, the man who has prevented him from fulfilling the thing to which God has called him is dead. But instead, we see David and his men plunge into this lament. And they do it in a land of exile. Like, they're not even part of the Israelite tribe right now. They're not required to do this. But instead, David stops and leads them in lament. And then after this period of grief, the narrator now shifts us back to this conversation between David and the Amalekite in verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered and said, I am a sojourner and a Malachite. So this is interesting information for us to get right here. David has just finished fighting the Amalekites, right? And now all of a sudden one comes prancing along and delivers him this devastating news. And this term sojourner is important for us to kind of key into because this means that this man, this Amalekite, wasn't necessarily an Amalekite. Like he had been brought into the Israelite tribe. He was part of the nation of Israel. He was a member of their camp. And because of this, David knows that this man should have known something very special about God's anointed king. So David pushes into this in verse 14, and he says to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So we know that this Amalekite is lying, right? We have enough information to know that, but David doesn't necessarily. David doesn't kill this man for lying. He kills him because of what he said he did. David knows that it is not up to man to reach out and kill the Lord's anointed. This is why David didn't kill Saul in the cave. Remember that story? This is why Saul's armor bearer refused to kill him on Mount Gilboa, because you don't touch the Lord's anointed. David did not touch Saul because he had respect for the one that the Lord had chosen and anointed. David knew that nobody had the right to end Saul's life except for God, that nobody had the right to force God's hand. And so this Amalekite dies not because of his false words, but because of the intent of his heart. We know that he did not murder Saul, but it seems like he had every motive to do so. And again, notice the irony that is in this story. Saul was supposed to completely wipe out the Amalekites. But instead, we see an Amalekite come and strip Saul of his signs of royalty, his armlet and his crown. And where does David come from in this story? He has just come from fighting and wiping out the Amalekites. Do you see what the narrator is doing here? He is, again, reminding us of this contrast between David and Saul. There is one who obeys the Lord's commands, and there is one who doesn't. And we are reminded again that David is the one of God's choosing. So we see that the Amalekite is killed, and now David resumes his grief. Verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah, Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So what we're going to see now is we're going to see David launch into this highly organized piece of writing in the form of a lament. But this is not just like a moaning or a crying out to the Lord like we saw back in verses 11 and 12 just a moment ago. And I think a lot of times when we think about lament, we just think like it's just us like pouring out our feelings, right? It's just us in the moment saying how we feel before the Lord. And it can be that. 
But that's not quite what we're going to see here because this section is not a chaotic pouring out of feelings. This is a highly organized outpouring of emotion in the form of a poem that is very, very intentional. Now, our narrator tells us that this lament is recorded in the book of Jashar, which is also a book that's mentioned in the book of Joshua. But we don't have this book any longer, so it's not something that we can go back and reference, but it seems that it was probably like a collection of poetry, uh, probably that detailed major events in the history of Israel that the people would go back and look at. And so what we see here is that David intends for this lament to not just be a one-time thing. He records this, and he provides a way for the people of Israel to continue to mourn over the king that they have lost. I think this is so instructive for us as a church, because I think sometimes in the church, there is an impatience with grief. I think there's this feeling that, like, we have hope, just get over it, right? Get over this mourning, get over this loss, and move on with life. But this is not biblical. This is not what we see here in this text for sure. Lament in the Bible assumes that grief is deep and that grief is ongoing. Lament invites us to pour out our heart, our sorrows, our frustrations before the Lord to ask those hard questions that we are struggling with. Not only that, but lament urges us to enter into the sufferings of others. As we read this lament today, we have not experienced the death of Saul ourselves. We didn't experience the the death of Jonathan, but because of this lament, we can enter into the grief of David and the people of Israel. We can stand with lament with our brothers and sisters in Christ as they sit in sorrow and cry out to the Lord. Never are we called to look at the sorrows of our world and tell people to move on. Instead, we're called to stand in the messiness of grief and cry out to our deliverer. And what I want to point you to in this lament is about the way that David structures it. And so as we go through, we're going to kind of bounce around in it because this is a chiastic structure. And if you studied the book of Exodus with us, maybe you remember we talked about chiasms then. But a chiasm is an ancient Near Eastern technique of writing where they would um, write a poem or a story. And what they, the author is doing is the beginning and the end of the poem match. Okay, there's parallelism. And then the middle sections of the poem match. And what this does for the audience is it points them to the middle of the poem, which we're going to find is the main point that the author wants to communicate. So we're going to see this parallel structure as we go through this event. We're going to see parallel ideas at the beginning and end, parallel ideas in the middle, and this this center idea where the emphasis is going to be. And this chiasm is going to go from verses 19 to 25. So I would encourage you to follow along in the text as we go through this, because I think it will be helpful for you to be able to see. We're also going to see that verses 26 to 27 of this poem are kind of set outside of the chiasm, and they're kind of going to be the climax of what David wants to say to us. So we're going to start looking at this lament, beginning in verse 19. And beginning in verse 19, we see this. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Okay, so that's the first part of our poem. We're now going to jump down to verse 25, and we're going to see a matching statement. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. Do we see how it matches? Continuing on in verse 19, we see this phrase, how the mighty have fallen. Now, looking back down in verse 25, what do we see? But how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Okay, do we see these parallel statements? We now go up back up to verse 20. And David says this, Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Moving down to verse 24, David has another comparison about daughters. He says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Moving back up to verse 21. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. So in 21, we see a comparison between two things, fields and mountains. 
If we look at verse 23, we see another comparison. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. So we have this comparison of eagles and lions. And then that leads us right into the middle here, which is verses 21 and 22. And so again, we want to ask the question, what is the main point that David wants to tell us? Where is the emphasis? And it says this, For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Okay, so we have this final statement here, and at the beginning of 21, we hear this statement about a shield, and then 22, we see the statement about a bow and a sword, and what do we find right in the middle of that? But this phrase that says, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Every single phrase of this lament is carefully chosen and thought out, and this is the main emphasis of David's grief. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Now, in these battles, in these times, a shield would have been made with leather. And so a shield had to be anointed with oil. It had to have an oil on it so that it remained supple and was able to work. But the Hebrew word for shield here, the Hebrew word for shield is magain, which could also be translated as ruler. And what so David is doing here is he's doing a play on words. He says, the shield of Saul is not anointed with oil. But what he could also be saying is that the ruler, Saul, is not anointed with oil. The anointing of Saul, David laments, is gone. He is lamenting the fact that that anointing that Saul received has been removed from him. Verses 21 and 22 might be the center of this poem of lament, but as we move to these final two verses in 26 and 27, we see that these events are kind of like the climax of what David is grieving. Verse 26, and also here we see that he moves not from just Saul and Jonathan, but he moves right just to Jonathan. Verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me has been extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Here we see a statement of David's deep love for Jonathan. And I think that it is really a shame that these verses have sometimes been questioned and twisted by people who have wondered at this comparison between David's love for Jonathan and his love for women. And people have looked at that and been like, is that a little weird? What is that? What's going on here? And what a shame that we can't see the beauty in love that can exist among friends. David is remembering here the faithfulness and steadfast character of Jonathan. Because Jonathan was heir to the throne. He was the one who should have been king next. But Jonathan willingly removed his crown and offered it to David instead. Jonathan lived a life that was willing to say, I will be second. Right? He lived a life that was content to set aside his own interests for the good of another. Who was willing to lay aside his own kingdom because he saw a better kingdom. God's kingdom. This is covenant love, and this is the love that David says surpasses the love that he has experienced with women. David is saying there that here that he has experienced more deepness in relationship with Jonathan than he has even with his wives. There is such a thing as a deep and abiding friendship, and unfortunately, sometimes I think the church elevates marriage and romantic relationships so much that we have neglected the beauty that can be found in friendships. We have neglected to show the world that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can live in community in such a beautiful way like Jonathan and David did where we can encourage one another and point each other to the promises that God has for us. And I think one question we have to ask is that if we, as the people of God, don't show the world what this looks like, who's going to? There is such beauty here 
in the relationship between David and Jonathan. So we see David and Jonathan mourn the loss, or we see David mourn the loss of Jonathan and Saul. And as we move into chapter 2, probably what we're wondering is like, okay, now is David finally going to get his rightful spot on the throne? This thing that we have been waiting for. But once again, we're going to see that David is not going to grasp for power that is not his to take. And so the first thing he does is he asks the Lord for direction. Chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into the cities of the Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So you saw in your homework that there is some significance with this town of Hebron. It is where Abraham, where Sarah, where Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are all buried, right? This is a place that is full of covenant promises. And that is so significant to what we're going to see happening. But there's also some strategic advantages to being in Hebron too. This is the highest town in the area of Judah, and so it's very elevated. This is also um, in the, again, the, the area of Judah where David is from. We also know back from chapter 31 in that story of the battle with the Amalekites, we know that David made some good uh, relationships with the people of Judah, right? That he did some favors for them. And so this is very strategic as well and a good place for David to be. But more than all of that, as David moves from Ziklag back to Hebron in Judah, David is now moving back into fellowship with God's people. He is moving from exile back to the land of God. And so for us, this really marks the beginning of David's reign. Verse 2. So David went up from there, and his wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So we get to this part, and maybe you're like, wait a second. We've already seen David anointed. Why is he being anointed again? Well, the anointing that we saw back in 1 Samuel was a private anointing. Just Samuel and David witnessed that. And now we see this, this public anointing that makes this a visible ruling king. Now, it is only king over one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and that's a small tribe at that. But still, we see that God's kingdom is now visible. And I love this idea, this idea that God, God's chosen one starts out ruling as only the king of this small tribe. Because we're told by Jesus that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? That it often starts out small and then grows. And we're going to see that in 2 Samuel. We're going to see that this kingdom is going to grow and flourish. But for now, David's reign starts off small and visible to only a few. But this is just how Jesus' ministry began too. We're told by Jesus when he comes in the book of Matthew, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like basically Jesus is saying like, hey, the kingdom is here. But then what does Jesus do next? He goes and calls a few disciples, a few random fishermen, and these are his right-hand men, Right? The kingdom of God starts out small. And I think for many of us, this is what serving the Lord looks like and probably will look like most of our lives. We serve him in mostly ordinary, mundane, small moments of life. But just as David could trust in the Lord to fulfill what he had promised, even when reality didn't quite match that promise, we can as well because we know that our anointed one, our Lord, is already seated on the throne. Continuing on here in verse 4. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. 
So David reaches out to these men in Jabesh Gilead. And if you remember back in 1 Samuel, these are the men who rescued Saul's body. And they did this because Saul once delivered them. Okay, in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 11, these, these people of Jabesh Gilead were being basically harassed by this king Nahash. And he was the one who like, wanted to gouge their eyes out. And they sent out this panicked message asking for help. And Saul came and answered that plea and delivered them. And so at Saul's death, they remember this and they return the favor. And they, they get Saul's body and the bodies of his sons. And they bring him back and give him a proper burial. And so David sends them this message saying like, hey, because you honored Saul, I want to honor you. And I think this is genuine sentiment, but it's also a political one as well, right? There's some advantages to this because we know that David wants to be king over all of Israel, not just the town of Judah, not just that tribe. And so Jabesh Gilead, if you look at your maps, Jabesh Gilead is in the north, and it's located along the Jordan River. So it is part of the area of Israel that David does not have any control over. And so what David is basically saying is like, hey, guys, like, I want to honor you. Thanks for honoring the old king. Like, I am now in the king of Judah. He's basically saying like, well, can I be king over you as well? Right? These people are now facing a decision because as we're going to see in a moment, they're going to have to choose what king they're going to pledge allegiance to because we're going to see another king pop up on the scene. And we don't find out in this narrative what nation they pledge their allegiance to, but we do know that David makes this offer. Continuing on in verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, so Abner was a cousin of Saul, and he was the captain of Saul's army. So he now takes the initiative, and he takes one of Saul's surviving sons, and he establishes him as Saul's successor. And here's the worst part, though, of what Abner does, is we're going to find out in chapter 3 that Abner knew that God had chosen David. Abner knew that David had already been anointed. He knows David is the one chosen by God. And so Abner, as Abner does this, he's not only opposing David's kingship, he is opposing Yahweh's will. And we need to keep this in mind as we continue to follow his character. There's also some weird things going on here with dates, right? We see that Ishbosheth reigned for two years, David reigned for seven, and they're kind of like imbalanced. And most likely what happened is that David began his reign first. He reigned for five years, and as Ishbosheth was trying to, to gain support from these areas in the north, Ishbosheth then reigned for two years at the end of David's reign over Judah. Verse 12 Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Okay, so again, this is where we need our maps. If you look at your maps, you'll see that Mahanaim is east of the Jordan River. It's to the north. And then if you look at Gibeon, you'll see that Gibeon is closer to the south, and it is just a few miles from Jerusalem. So basically, as we read here, if we knew ancient Israel well, we, have, we would know that what is basically being told is that Abner is on the attack. Right? He is moving down towards, toward David and his men. And then we read in verse 13, Joab, the son of Zeruah, the servants of David, went out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon. And so now David's men move on the defensive to go and meet this army. Continuing on, they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place is called Helkath of Hezerum, which is at Gibeon. 
And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten by the servants of David. So what we are seeing here is probably like a contest, a representative battle, kind of like we saw with David and Goliath, where a small group of representatives fight in the hopes that this will avoid a major battle. But that's not quite how it plays out, because we see here that the bloodshed ends in favor of David's men. And then it goes on in verse 18 to tell us that even after this battle, the fighting continues. And the three sons of Zeruah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. That name, guys, man, I'm going to try, but like that is not a name you want to say in a church. Continuing on, now Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died where he was, and all who came to that place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So as we read this portion of the text we should be brought to a sense of mourning over the wastefulness of this situation. Abner, after this battle that we saw, is is pursued by these three brothers, particularly by Asahel, who seems to see it as his mission to kind of like top off their victory by killing Abner. And Abner surprisingly seems kind of unwilling to kill Asahel. Like he warns him multiple times to stop, but seems to have eventually no choice. And he stops running, turns, and faces him, and Asahel runs straight through his spear. Now these three sons of Zeruah that we're told about here have a history of kind of wanting to force God's hand and God's will. We saw Abiashai already. He was in 1 Samuel in the cave with David, and he was one of the men, when David refused to kill Saul, he was one of the men who urged him to take Saul's life. And so we see here this eagerness to install David as king and not really playing it out in the best way. And we're going to see continual behavior like of this from these brothers as we continue in 2 Samuel. Continuing on in verse 24. But Job and Abeshai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one group, and they took their stand at the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and says, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have not, got, not given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. So when we see here in the heat of this battle that after um, Ashahel is killed, Joab and, Ab- and Abishai, these brothers, continue to pursue Abner. And Abner eventually gets to the top of a hill, and he's able to rally some men around him. And they kind of take their stand there. And they basically demand a truce from Joab and his army. But notice Abner's appeal here. He says, we're brothers, right? Why would you fight us? We're brothers, And we need to kind of use some caution as we look at this because we need to remember what Abner has just done. Abner has set up a different king over Israel other than God's chosen one. Abner took his army and moved south on the offensive to attack. Abner is opposing God's kingdom. So does he really see them as brothers? We should question that statement. Verse 29, Abner and his men went all that night through Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, marching the, marching the whole morning. They came to Mehanim. 
Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Ashahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel, and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Benjamin. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So Abner returns to his place. Joab returns to his place. We don't see enormous loss, but it is a hint of the bloodshed that's going to come. We see in this text a theme of wastefulness. Saul opposed the kingdom of God, and in this opposition, he eventually meets his demise. And we see this same thing happening here with Abner. Abner is not only willing to resist the kingdom of God, but like Saul, he takes up the offensive and he fights it. And this might seem absurd to us, but is this not what we do sometimes? I think we fall into patterns sometimes where we resist the goodness of God's ways. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, he quickly follows this statement with his Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has these phrases where he describes what God's kingdom is like, and he says that God's kingdom is for people who are poor in spirit. Right? He says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather be powerful than be meek. God's kingdom is not like our kingdom. His ways are not like our ways. I think we often resist God's kingdom because God's kingdom is so upside down and foreign to us. How often do we resist God's kingdom because we're called to die to ourselves and we would rather be like Abner and we would rather be like Saul and grasp for temporary power? Right? We would rather grasp for power that is false than to rest and trust in the security of God's sovereignty. I'm in a small group right now, and we've studied the lectionary text each week. And this week, one of our readings was from the book of Jonah. And the story of Jonah follows, jo follows Jonah, a prophet of God, and God tells Jonah that he's going to go to the town of Nineveh, right, this area, and he's going to preach God's gospel to them. And Jonah refuses and runs in the other direction because he says the people there are evil. And he's like, Lord, I want no part of this. And if you know the story, you know eventually through a series of events, like Jonah gets thrown off a ship, he gets swallowed by a fish, he gets spit back out on land, and finally Jonah's like, all right, I will go. And he gets to the town of Nineveh, he gets to the land there, and he preaches the good news to the people. He says, you need to repent because God is going to destroy you because you are so evil. And what does happens in that story? But the people of Nineveh repent, right? The most amazing thing to happen, the most evil people you can imagine, repent of their sin and turn back to God. And God relents and forgives them. And Jonah, how does Jonah respond? Not with rejoicing. Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to come here, Lord. I knew you were going to do this. I knew that your love and your goodness was this great. I knew that it would extend towards forgiving even these people. Jonah says, I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How often are we like Jonah, resistant to the way that God is working and moving because we aren't willing to be peacemakers quite like that. We aren't quite willing to see love extended quite that far. Did you expect David to rejoice over Saul's death? I am so challenged by David's response to the wastefulness of sin. Because rather than rejoicing over the death of his enemy, David mourns. He laments that God's ways were not embraced by Saul. And in this lament of David, we see a beautiful taste of Jesus, who when he is hanging on a cross, being killed by his people, the people he created, says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. 
This is the kingdom that we are called to represent, a kingdom that, re, that, re, that laments over the wastefulness that sin, sin brings, a kingdom that does not resist the goodness that God is doing in the world. Psalm 23 is a psalm that I think most of us know very well. Like, the Lord is our shepherd, right? He leads me beside still, still in quiet waters. And there's this portion of this psalm where we're told that God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And if you're like me, I've often looked at that verse and pictured this. I've been like, man, God's going to prepare this beautiful table before me. It's going to be filled with all of these good things representing God's goodness for me. And he's going to prepare it in front of my enemies. And I've kind of looked at it as this way of being like, man, look at what you are missing out on, right? Look at what God has given me that you don't get to partake in. But what if, what if that verse was pointing us to something different? What if that verse was pointing us to the fact that God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that if we partner with God in his kingdom, we are willing to invite our enemies to partake in. We are willing to reach out and say, look at this goodness that you can enjoy too. Not that we lord it over them, but that we invite them into it. This text invites us to compare David's embrace of God's kingdom and compare it to the opposition that we see in Saul and Abner and ask the question, where do I fall? Do I really embrace God's goodness? Do I really embrace God's upside-down ways, even like Jonah, even when it doesn't make sense to me? And I think this is a moment for us to check our hearts and examine them because I think there are times where we fall more in the camp of Saul and Abner than we do in the camp of David. And it's a time for us to also praise and be in marvel of the God that we serve and thankful that we serve a God who is so contrary to the ways in which we naturally think. That we serve a God who invites us into a goodness that is just beyond our comprehension. And so with that thought, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the chance to examine our hearts. To consider the times when maybe we just don't understand the way that you are moving. Or we don't understand the the goodness and the wonderful things that you are trying to do in this world. Lord, as we look at the difference between David and the difference between Saul and Abner, Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts. Help us to, to be moved to confession over the times where we have failed to extend your goodness to others, or in times where we have resisted the ways in which you are moving and doing things in this world because we just can't quite get on board with that. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love for us. We thank you, Lord, for the goodness in the way that you work in this world. I pray your blessing over these ladies as they move into their small group time, Lord. I pray that their conversations would glorify you and would encourage them, themselves as well. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.